It was fun to catch up with Linda Pittman and talk to her about all the things she's done in her amazing career as a drummer. DaleWileyShow.com Because there was something in the water in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, don't forget me. I'm Brenda Lee, and we're all going to have fun tonight on Ozark Jubilee. Missouri Music Podcast, hosted by music fan and the founder of Slewfit Records, Mr. Dale Wiley. I'm talking today to Linda Pittman, and I've known Linda for many years, and she's been the, the awesome drummer of many bands. But I want to start by talking about your time in Zuzu's Pedals. Sure, yeah, fire yeah. away, Dale. <laughs> All right, so how did you get involved in that? Uh, well, I was working in a cafe, um, uh-huh. and uh, Lori and Colleen were were two of the sort of veteran right. uh, cook and waitresses at, um, at the cafe, and uh, I was a newbie. And I'd never worked in food service before. So I think they probably thought I was, you know, next to useless. I'm, I'm pretty sure about <laughs> that. Um, but, uh, you know, so I was actually a little bit, you know, I was a little bit terrified of them. Because <laughs> as you may or may not know, in, in diner, like old school diner type thing, you know, right. it's sort of like, a given that the servers are going to be like a bit, you know, irreverent yeah. and, right. you know, kind of like lovable curmudgeon. Right. Um, so, yeah, they kind of scared the crap out of me slightly really? to begin with. That's <laughs> why. Because well, just knowing I didn't know you, what I was doing. I didn't well, know I, I know that, but I can't imagine you being scared of anybody. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> well, then... We've got work to do. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of people that scare me out there. Um, no, so uh, then I came to um, get to know them a little bit and really uh, thought they were super great, and I really looked up to them. And, and then I found out they were in a band, and of course, being a huge music fan and having played around a little bit in some bands, um, you know, I was always going out and everything. I was like, oh, I got to check you guys out. I, I got to come down and see yeah. a gig. And um, actually, their drummer also worked at the cafe. I forgot to mention that. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I went down to see them play and thought they were really cool. I mean, yeah, I know. They they were they had something really special. It was pretty obvious to me, even though they certainly weren't on the. Uh, off the Richter scale in terms of their like technical ability, yeah. But like, you know, the songs were just so great and really affecting and and really great. And fun. of course, really their fun. personalities were yeah. were brilliant. So yeah, so I I made the um the bold move of saying the next day at work, hey, if you guys ever need a conga player, <laughs> a conga player. I had just purchased some congas for my roommate <laughs> who uh who was short on rent. So uh that was what I could offer up and then um they kinda went, Oh yeah, gee, yeah. Yeah, we'll let you know. Um but then <laughs> their uh the the drummer eventually she she kind of lost interest in the whole the whole business and, 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 and quit. So at that point I was the easiest I was Standing right there. Wow. Next to them at work. So yeah. So I offered it. Well, up. you know, the thing I remember is that we first I first saw you at Cicero's in St. Louis. And I remember that you were attracted down to the basement bar 
both yeah. Jay and Jeff from from Uncle Duplo, and that was a huge rarity that they were both in in the same place at the same time. Oh, so I didn't even know they were there. Oh. They were there. They definitely were. I remember that night so well because I really think that was probably the last time I saw them together other than a concert. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, they might have been there to check out a new band. They also might have been there if Eric was doing our sound. Okay. He might have been. Um, he worked, he and Andy Wolf, Eric Pearson and Andy Wolf, who were really good friends of ours and who basically were our guardians. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and, and like helped us out on so many levels, but they, they would oftentimes go out and do runs with us and, uh, they, they were working with them at various times, um, Uncle Tupelo. So it may have been that Eric, you know, called them up and said like, Hey, come on down. We're going to, I'm going to be in town with this band. I mean, I know there was some, yeah, there was an awareness. I always would go see them when, play when they came through town. Yeah, but I don't sure. recall ever really, like, hanging out with them. But um, I really loved Uncle Tupelo, so. Oh, yeah, they were very good. And, you know, yeah. I guess that, you know, over the next couple of years, I got to know you guys a little bit. And I just always thought you guys were so fun and so amazing. Oh, well, that's that's awesome to hear. I kind of... <laughs> I can I can guarantee you we were we were fun, you uh, were and fun. on a good and on a good night we were kind of amazing. Well, I think <laughs> that you know the thing that I just remember is number one, it was still kind of a rarity to see an all female band, and I just really thought that you guys were so good, and the fun part definitely played into it too. It was all, sure. but I really thought that you guys had a good sound, and I was very amazed. Oh, you've kind of dropped out just a little bit, so I didn't catch that last uh, sentence. Okay, I was really amazed by the second record, especially. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's good to hear. (laughs) Yeah, Albie Galoon, he produced that one. So tell me, what was it, tell me about being in Zuz's Pedals, what was that like? Well, uh, on on what level? On whatever level. Get le- more specific know. with me, Dale. T- <laughs> tell right. me what you really want to hear about. Well, I, I just want to hear about what was it like musically to be in that band. Oh, musically, it was it was really I enjoyed it a lot. Um, you know, the thing is. Trios are less and less common all the time. I would have to say. Yeah, uh-huh. you don't. I mean, you know, obviously you see them; they're out there. They're, you know, there's duos, sure. there's trios, there's. But you know, uh, just like a real straight up like rock and roll trio, you don't. It's it's not as common, um, and it and it really wasn't even back then. And um, I hadn't played in a trio before. Okay. So this was my first time doing that. And um you know, being that none of us were like virtuosos, nobody right. had gone to music school and and was filling <laughs> up a lot of space was what they did, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Um so the songs were, you know, what made the songs interesting was the fact that they were well written from the part of Laurie and Colleen in the sense that they had really interesting melodies. They had really interesting lyrics and really yeah. heartfelt lyrics and really like a point of view, you know, that it was their own. And, um, and I, and I liked the songs musically. I thought they were really unique and cool. Um, but, but there was this interesting uh, puzzle when when trying to approach the songs because you know the songs were spacious based on the fact that there were only three of us and then on sure. top of that on top of that nobody was filling up a ton of space 
noodling like a Berkeley graduate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so you know, there was there was this kind of interesting puzzle from from my end of things, like how to add some musicality in there. Like there was, it was great because there was a lot of room for me to sort of try to do some interesting things besides just keep a backbeat, which you might do if you were in a six piece band that had two keyboard players and, you know, um, you know, a violin player and guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I felt like, okay, there's a lot of room in here to do some interesting things and it may be, you know, it's not just to do it. It's not just to fill up space, but you know, like it may require it. It may require another real point of view. Sure. Um, well, and you know, like that's... you know, and I kind of hear melodies when I play drums. I'm not really just thinking in terms of rhythm, and so this was kind of a nice opportunity for me to try out things that wouldn't have made sense in other bands, and vice versa. Yeah. Since then, I haven't had that much space since that time so you know it was a unique time i definitely understand that because let's not lose fact of just how amazing a drummer you are and so tell me about how you got into music uh well uh i would say my first memories of music are based around sitting in my bedroom like most kids um, especially of of that era, um, sure. in front of a little kid's record player. Okay. Um, with a stack of 45s that belonged to my older siblings. Okay. Um, so I had a, I have a sister who's 10 years older and a brother who's 12 years older. Okay. Um, so they were already into, you know, by the time... I came around. They were already teenagers. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So they yeah. already had, they were already making kind of like more grown up musical choices. So we had, and I don't even know if they bought these. Like it's possible that those had been handed down to them as well through some right. other, you know, but like there were Elvis 45s, there were Simon and Garfunkel 45s. Um, but then also just random trendy things that might have been in the charts at the time, like the tea set, Ma Belle oh. Ami, which is still one of my favorite oddball <laughs> songs. It's just the greatest song. I just about lose my mind every time I hear it. Um, but so I'm like three or four, five years old, and I'm just exploring this box of you know, a little 45 box of sounds. And I don't know any of these, any of these bands. I don't know what Elvis sure. means as opposed to my bell, you know, the T set, some sure. such pop band. They're all yeah. the same to me, just like a kid perusing the internet now. Right. They're perusing every era, every genre, but it's all the same. They don't know what year it came from. Right. unless that's You know what I mean? It's worse. It's just there. Exactly. So that's what this was. I wasn't going out and choosing these. They were just there. And so it was like having the world's smallest website um, of select, <laughs> you know. It was like 20 singles maybe. Um, wow. Oh, Billy Jack and, you know. Um, but so anyway, I would just uh, listen over and over and over. But I really was into, um, really into the Elvis singles and really into Simon and Garfunkel. So okay. the so the two songs that I would play over and over and over and just would be fascinated by the drums were um Hound Dog and uh Cecilia. Really? Or Celia, Celia. Yeah. Those were the two songs that just because they had both had a strong rhythmic yes. element to them yes. and just were like really groovy and really cool and I would basically spend an afternoon trying to figure out how they did it like what a really? drummer yeah yeah I did and then I started building my own little drum sets with you know like kids will do with pots and pans and 
Tupperware, and I would beg my mom not to throw out the Quaker Oats cans. I would have to right. keep reminding her. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah, like, now, when that's, when we're done, that's mine. <laughs> that container is mine. And she's like, I know, I know, I know. Um, you know, and she would occasionally let me steal some of the Tupperware and, and take that into the room. Wow. And then I would just play with pencils or Tinker Toy bits and, and like, try to figure out how to do it and like sit in front of the mirror and like check myself out. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> like going for a like cool look too. So, I mean, really, this is all prior to going into school. Uh-huh. So, so pretty early on, I was really kind of obsessed and started asking for a drum set when I was seven or eight. Really? Once I figured out that that was what real drummers had was this uh-huh. drum set but that of course didn't happen that wasn't right. gonna happen <laughs> not in my house uh, i mean they were nice but my folks are the best 100 percent the best but you know they're not gonna in they're not going to um bring home a noise making <laughs> yes. uh hurricane um machine uh, and put that in front of me. I mean, I had enough going on as it was. I was enough of a terror as it was. So. Yeah, that's how I didn't get a drum set until I was 21. Okay. And so, but by the time you were in Zuzu's, you were a yeah. really, really good drummer. And so tell me how you decided, you know, in other words, it seems like you were always interested in it, but what what influences did you have that made you be such a strong Trevor. Uh, you know, well, thank you for saying that. And, yes. You know, when I listen back to those records, and really, I I do sort of like chuckle at the fact that, like, you know, we all, by the time we made that first record, it's like, it's amazing. We put a lot of work into getting there. You know, we we rehearsed about Oh yeah, probably five days a week. Probably five days a week, and for a pretty good chunk of time, you know, uh-huh. uh, oh, down yeah. in Lori's basement. So I mean, that that really, we we went for it. We weren't messing around. Like we all had a yeah. vision that we wanted to really write songs, uh, get get good enough to get out there and really start gigging and touring. Who knows, maybe maybe if we were lucky to get to make a record or whatever. But by the right. time, you know, the thing is, by the time I met them, I actually had played in a couple of bands. Um, okay. So I was uh, sort of a step ahead of them in the sense that I had played gigs out, you know. I mean, not big gigs, not big gigs by any means. And they sure. had been doing some shows with uh, with Vicky, their original drummer. So, But, you know, I'd kind of been at it a little bit longer. and And, and I had the schooling. So that's the big difference. So I I actually started playing drums in school band when I was I would say nine, like fourth grade. Um so I and I took it really seriously. So I studied really hard and did it all the way pretty much all the way through high school. I think uh-huh. I quit my senior year. I kinda got fed up with the band director or something. I, I was <laughs> yes. a, I was a sassy one. I don't know. He probably was he was probably about done with me too, chances are. But um, you know, I had other things on my mind by that point. I was like, sure. you know, I'm the punk rocker at school and right. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't need this shit. You know, I'm sure there was a bit of that going on as well. But I really did, right. the thing is is that I really did love studying. Um drums i loved reading music i loved practicing it i loved um i loved orchestra i loved orchestra too what oh you mean Drama. um outside Drama. of band so outside of the school stuff um uh-huh. i was listening to a well uh starting in junior high i kind of found new wave yes. stuff um so you know nothing you know no ha- hardcore had come my way but right. like you know i'm listening to i found that i was always drawn to the kind of you know more modern stuff so i was listening to the police and the go-go's and you know um trying to think in junior high the first thing uh, i went to germany to visit my sister and i heard trio 
okay. I heard, you know, da, 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 and kind of went, whoa, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is cool, you know. I was always kind of more intrigued by things like that. And then by the time I got to high school, I was um, I was going out with an older cat, and he was he was listening to you know Elvis Costello and oh. Talking Heads and and Pretenders and things. Like he opened up a whole world of things that I was not really yeah that I hadn't found. And right at that time, I started working at a record store as well oh, in my. Of course. In my neighborhood, yeah, kind of at the in local the mall. Where? Well, I grew up in a northern suburb of Minneapolis, so okay. it's, it's like an inner ring suburb at this point. But at the time, it felt like the boondock. But it's <laughs> yeah. been swallowed into the city at this point. Yeah. But but no, it's a suburb, and and um, it was a you know a dorky mall. Uh, but it was a. It, it was cool. My boss was 15 years old. Really? Yeah, I can't tell you how cool she was. Um, <laughs> she had, like, lied on her application, quite obviously, um, to get the job, <laughs> probably at the age of 13. And by the age of 15, really? she was managing the store. Wow. And I wonder had if you heard. killer she taste. fantastic. Yeah, she was, she was amazing. She had killer taste. <laughs> So I would come in and buy like Talking Heads records and stuff. So she and nobody else at this mall was buying any of that stuff. I'm sure. <laughs> but the fact is, they had all this cool. They had some really cool records. They actually had an import section, oh, which really? you would never see. Yeah, and it was a, you know, it was a, it was called the record shop. So it was, a, you know, obviously a chain store. Um. And but they had this import section. She was buying the imports, and I would come in and kind of just start asking her about them, like anything that was from England. I was pretty much game for. So, <laughs> yes. you know, I'd be I'd be going through there, and I'm like, ooh, they've got stuff that I've only been reading about. So then it was uh-huh. Dead Kennedys, Sex Pistols, Clash, yeah, um, uh, and then a bunch of reggae stuff. But but cool, like these really early, uh, like this cool collection of early Bob Marley stuff. Really? So it was kind of more like the Blue Beat, like, yeah. Yeah, the Blue yeah, Beat. Yeah, like small acts yeah. and, and and you know, 400 years. And like just these really cool old tinny sounding productions from Kingston. And, you know, so I was just kind of like, just wading in and grabbing everything that I could. And finally, I was just like, hey, man, are you guys taking an application? <laughs> um, with my uh, my my really bad approximation of, uh, you know, punk rock clothing, right. uh, you know, <laughs> some bad, you know, really ill-informed ideas about haircuts and clothing. But, you know, she was just like, yeah, 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 you're, you're, you're cool. Like, you can start working here. <laughs> yeah. So. Definitely. So that was good. So that, you know, that allowed me to really like throw myself into uh, just listening to everything and not having to pay for it. Because yeah. money is a money is a problem. If yeah. you know, like, you know, a kid now, if you have access to a computer and an Internet, you don't have to really have money to, to explore everything. But at that time, like you had to be able to buy these records, and it's like oh, import records. Oh hell no! Totally. Are you kidding me? Right? I mean, it's amazing to think what a kid has access to today. Right. Really right. Cool. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's really great. Is. But like, we would have to go, you and I, and uh, uh, people of our ilk. You know, you'd have to, you'd have to really search them out, and then, um, and then of course I got hip to buying used records once I. Once I was out of um, high school and into college, and I, I continued working in record stores. I seamlessly went right into working in stores in Binky Town on the university campus. And um, and then just, like, hitting all the used record stores, which Minneapolis had a million of, and, um, yeah. and, and just, like, hitting them daily, like, doing the rounds. Wow. You know, and hitting the new the new batch that would be on the ground, 
in a pile like the ones that they just bought and I'd be like, you know, I'm looking for that Mike Heron record. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that nobody can get. It's out of print. Right. And that's the other thing. Ooh, it's all out of print. Big stars exactly. out of print. How am I going to get yeah. to hear this, you know? Definitely. It was an adventure. It definitely was something you didn't get all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, so then, uh, you asked that. I digress, as I always do. I it's okay. Around. No, no. I circle, <laughs> I circle around until I come back to the original question. You asked me how I became, how I started drumming, though. And yes. it really became, so as I'm listening to all this stuff, and I'm at school, and I'm studying at and everything like that. Um, I was, you know, generally the 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 younger kid in those bands because in the school band because I was, you know, I was in the senior band when I was like a sophomore. Right. Sure. Because uh, yeah. they, yeah, I was doing doing a good job. So they put me yeah. in with the older kids, and they were great. Like I loved, I loved it. Um, and and my friends Mike and Donovan were great drummers, and they were already playing. They had drum sets, you know, set up in their basements, and they they were really good. And basically, uh, there was a kit at school, and they were allowed to go in on their lunch hour and like play. And I would just watch because I didn't know how to do it. But they were really super patient and really like you know would kind of show me some stuff. Um, I mean, they didn't really give me lessons, but I mean, I would watch them and they would let me watch. And, <laughs> and you know, it's just like you kind of, you, you just sort of, I learned by watching, I basically. And then my mom, she was really sweet. She, I begged her, I said, you know, Donovan will give me lessons, 10 bucks a lesson though. So she said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll spring for a couple lessons. Okay. So she drove me over to his house and I took, I think a total of two lessons from Don, and but he taught me a ton in two lessons. Really? Like, yeah. He basically, you know, he was like, buy these books. So my mom went out and bought me a couple books. He taught right. me how to read. You know, I already knew how to read music, but he said, okay, for drum set, you see, this is where the snare, this is the line where the snare is, this is the line where the bass drum is. So he was like, so you're going to have to read, like, four or five things at once. Okay. So instead of just reading the one line of music like you normally would do in bands where you're only playing the snare drum or whatever, sure. you got to right. read them all at the same time. And he's like, so you can, you know, you're going to have to like figure out how to do this, but he's like, basically you can just read across on this one line and practice doing what the cymbal does. Then you read across and try doing what the bass drum does. You know, figure out what they're all doing separately. He's like, then the trick is you got to get it all going at the same time. Uh-huh. And he's like, you know, that nobody can help you with. That's that's you. Right. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. on you. But you know, he gave me some good tips, and like, I kind of figured out how to do it. I sort of, from there, I think I played a party. Somebody said, yeah, there's a bunch of kids getting together. You know, doing a party. Uh, they need a drummer. You think you can do it? So like, I learned quickly how to, you know, I figured out how to play. Like, uh, should I stay or should I go? And sure. like, <laughs> a couple of other good, you know, proper new wave classics. And I uh, went and played the party and was kind of like, I was like, yeah, it can be done. Like we yeah. sucked, but like, you know, it can be done. Exactly. And then, yeah, then. Went away to college a month later, and all the people I started hanging out with all had their version of, a lot of them had been playing in little garage bands in high school. and Sure. So I would go see them play parties. Some of them even were gigging. And from there, I just kind of fell into, you know, it took a while. It was a year of just going around to see my friends play. Yeah, um, before I kind of got an opportunity, but um, yeah, my best friend quit his pretty popular band, and to my surprise, they asked me if I wanted to join them. So I joined my favorite band in town. So wow! For 
all of five gigs before I got kicked out for sucking. But, you know, <laughs> that'll happen. Well, you know, in, in thinking about this stuff, you know, I saw you in the early 90s in Hurdles. And then I'm now at Southwest in 2004, and basically Steve Wynn is playing. And I have no idea that you are the drummer. I just walk in, and there's Mike Mills. I'm like, an REM member, how cool is that? And I see that there is this amazing female drummer, and I that just stood out to me. And, of course, I didn't know it was you, but I just I just walked away from that adventure going, this drummer was just incredible. Huh. Well, thank you. Thank you. And <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing somehow, was it at the Cactus Cafe? It was at the Cactus Cafe. It sure that was. That was a show we did with John Doe. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I just remember that. And I just remember the thing I came away from that. I didn't even remember John Doe being there, but I just remember you know, that you were so good. I didn't know it was you because I would love mm-hmm. to come up and talk to you, but I was just like this. You were just out of this world, and that, you know, you just totally took that band in a different direction and totally rocked it. Yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, I remember being on fire that night. Um, <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> Mike remembers it because it was the first time he saw me play. He's old friend really? with Steve, right? Yeah, that wow. was the first time he saw me play. And he he's told this story a couple times. He goes, he, he's sitting like in the front row, I think. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I remember being behind, you know, just kind of standing there. But whatever, I don't. Okay. You know, yeah, cool. and basically, I uh, I hit the cymbal so hard it popped off, and like basically went off the stand and rolled to like Mike's feet, and he just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> That he was like, holy crap. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what in the... Because I just remember, you were just... <laughs> kind I of mean, me up. It's just kind of funny because I had no idea it was you, but you were just so great. And, you know, oh, that's that, very funny, you know, to, because I totally remember that show. Yeah, yeah. Both shows at South by South or at West, you're always kind of looking to... Uh, sure. You know, you've you've got there's a lot of there's a lot of bandwidth down there, a lot of people playing, and I think you know you kind of kick yourself into extra extra high yeah. gear down there. And I think during those days, thing. we really we really did that all the time down there. We had some really fun shows around that time. Um, there were a couple at um, I think one of the first times Peter saw me play was down there as well, and um, that was at a at a, a Continental show, okay. Club Continental, um, yeah. And I, I, I just remember talking to him after that, and and just kind of, yeah, you know, it's it's like those those shows definitely were were a fun opportunity to kind of like you know give it a little something extra and just kind of show off for your peers or yeah. people that are way better than your peers, <laughs> as yes. the case may be. Uh, you know, when am I going to get a chance to play for all these people? You know, you want to put your best foot forward. Oh, right? yeah. So, so, yeah. So I guess my question is, how did you meet Steve? How did that happen? Uh, uh, that was courtesy of ZZ's Pedals, being on tour. Okay. Um, yeah, so we just randomly were put on a bill with him, opening for him at Maxwell's in Hoboken. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Todd Abramson. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Todd's a good friend of ours um, at this point. Um, but yeah, he just randomly, uh, you know, put us on the same bill. And um, I was a very big fan. And I didn't even know that we were opening for him until, I don't know. I never, I just didn't look at the tour schedule that carefully really? all the time. And okay. yeah, I knew we were headed to Hoboken. I knew we were going to be playing Maxwell, but I don't. I don't recall really knowing that we were going to be opening for him because I would have been very, very psyched about that, you know, um, <laughs> well in advance because I was a big fan, really big fan. I uh-huh. um, I liked the Dream Syndicate quite a bit, but I really got into 
Kerosene Man, his first solo oh, yeah. record. Yeah. And I'd been spinning that a lot at the record store that I worked at. Right. Um, just, you know, the previous, the year previous to that. So I was, when I found out that that's what was happening, I basically did a little happy dance and was like, oh, I'm so nice. <laughs> um, and, you know, I can't say that I didn't have a little crush on his record covers. So, <laughs> sure. You know, um, so I was pretty, pretty happy and was hoping yeah. that I would get a chance to, like, meet him and talk to him. But it didn't really happen, which is the funny thing. Really? Not really. He wasn't really around before the show started. Um, he was not milling about. And, you know, it's hard. You don't really nowhere to hide in oh, Maxwell's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just like the bands just hang out pretty much upstairs because there wasn't a dressing room. It was just the right. basement, that dank, um, dripping basement storage yeah. room, you know, where you would go <laughs> if you really had to. Um, right. But so I, but I ended up having the most excellent time hanging out with his band, really? all of whom I am very close with. To this day, uh-huh. uh, Robert Lloyd, Kevin Jarvis, Robert Mache, um, and uh, let's see, who was playing bass at that time? Was it Paula Jean? Yeah, I think it was Paula Jean. Paula Jean Brown was playing bass at that time with them. Uh-huh. And uh, but I had an a, just an awesome conversation with them and had dinner with them. And um, so that that was awesome. And then we played our set. Uh, and then of course I had a great time watching them play that set. But I'm thinking the whole time, like, you know, I still haven't even gotten a chance to like say right. hi to the guy. Uh, yeah. This is a little disappointing, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, the evening ended, still nothing. We loaded up all of our gear. Um, we were out of the club. We were on our way out of there, and then I remembered that I, I, I forgot something back in the club. I said, hold on a second, guys. Stop the car. Stop the van. Um, and it was, by the way, it was our last show of our tour. Really? Our last show. We were going to be, yeah, we were going to be motor, motoring back to uh, Minneapolis after that. Wow. So uh, I run back into the club and just about knocked him over. He was coming out the, the door. And so there there it was. That was the wow. opportunity to say <laughs> hi, and I'm a fan, and it was a lot of fun doing the show and all that stuff. So so I nervously, you know, did a little, hey, it was really great, a lot of fun, and he was <laughs> super nice and said, uh, yeah, it was great. You guys sounded great, you know, wonderful. Um, and uh, I said, well, we're, we're headed home to Minneapolis, so um, anyway, have a good tour. And he said, oh, we're actually going to be playing Minneapolis in a few days. Um, oh, wow. So you guys should come down if you can. So we all went down to, to see them play um, uh, in Minneapolis a few nights later and didn't get to hang out with them. But <laughs> really? He, once again, he was sort of not <laughs> hanging around the club. But once again... Uh, had a great time with his band, and I took them out to my favorite Italian place down the street. We were getting along like gangbusters. Um, uh, but the next day, um, the next day we all went out for pancakes. I guess in the okay. morning. Yeah, we all we all went to this crazy pancake joint. That's a, that was a kooky place. But anyway. Um, so I hung out with them some more and he was, he was there for that. And we just, you know, we kind of like, he was nice. Like, I was like, this guy's great. Like we really had a nice connection and, um, that was awesome. But we didn't see each other again for three years. Wow. And we both had a lot of musical adventures, you know, under our belt in those three years. But during that time, he had moved to New York. Um, he had moved to New York. I think a year, it was about a year before I ended up moving there. So he came through Minneapolis opening for Pretty and Twisted. Um, 
right after he moved to New York. So I'm still, I'm in Minneapolis. I see that he's opening solo for them. I go down there and manage to uh, flag him down. And he was like, oh, man, yeah, I was wondering if you're going to come. Um, and we had a super nice chat, and he mentioned that he had moved to New York. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right. You left us a note at a club. <laughs> and you, you you left your contact info and wrote us a nice letter and said, you know, have a good gig. I think Gutterball was playing somewhere like the night before right. sure. we were. You know, so you left us a sweet note. And... um and anyway, yeah, he and I'm like, yeah, 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 that's right. He moved to New York. He's like, yeah. So uh, I said, you know, I'm actually, uh, I I quit Zuzu's Pedals. He's like, oh, no shit. I'm like, yeah, and I'm kind of thinking about blowing town. Um, you know, my sister lives in New York. I don't know. I'm considering it or whatever. And he goes, well, if you ever do come to New York, he's like, I might, between you and me, I might need a drummer. So he's like, really? just saying. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So then I pretty much got on the horn with my sister um, that night. And I sure. was like, um, what's, what's happening with you? You know, basically she was like, <laughs> you know what? Why don't you why don't you do it? She was like not in a super happy place. She had just right. gone through a divorce. She was like, I could use some company. Sure. Um, you know, I don't know. Do it. And I said, well, I'll call you tomorrow and see if you still feel that way. One of us might have had a glass of wine tonight and may regret having <laughs> said this. So, you know, uh-huh. I called her the next day and I said, if you're serious, I'm actually going to book a ticket now. Like, wow. And she said, oh, okay. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, really, last chance. Um, so I did. I think I was gone in couple weeks from then uh-huh. i just i just packed a bag um, wow i packed a duffel bag i packed a duffel <laughs> bag my dad dropped me off at the airport and he said see you in six months kid <laughs> and, and how long uh, has it been uh it has been 25 years wow. 25 years yep but True to his word, he did need a drummer. Uh, Dennis Duck had been kind of filling in um, uh-huh. for a short uh, a short while. He was kind of rotating through different players at that point in uh-huh. his life, just because not because he was, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, being a fussy band leader or anything. It was just right. that people had lots of different. Um, commitments and people sure. were playing in lots of different bands and stuff. So, and Dennis had a had a day job. He had a straight job. He wasn't really yeah. doing music full time at all. So he had just sort of like agreed to do this pretty lengthy year. With, uh, the members of Com, um, Chris Brokaw and Polyvetic, and then um, Armstead Welford from Love Tractor was filling in on bass. So they they did this amazing tour. That was a great band. They sounded the recordings from that live tour that they did were were awesome. That was for Melting in the Dark. That record. But anyway, he was like, he came back after that, and he was like, I don't know who my next band will be because none of these people are really available. Um, well, actually, Armistead was. Armistead was signed up for the next tour of duty, you know. But Steve needed to find all new players. So he was like, you know, you're going to have to audition. Really? Yeah. Uh, bottom line is he came, Steve came to see me play with this uh, this sort of uh, kind of pickup band that I put together right. with my friend Jill Richmond. And after we were opening for Freddie Johnston, and I was also a super huge fan of Freddie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, super huge fan. And... Um, he came up after the show and was talking to me and we were having a nice chat and he was being, you know, complimentary and nice and all. And then he went up to go play and then Steve kind of sprang up and ran over and he said, could he ask you to join his band? And I said, no, it would have been great though. And he was like, 
Okay, okay, because uh, yeah, I want you to, I want, I want you to audition. Yeah, I want you to come down, and uh, definitely. And I said, okay, all right, all right, it's on. Uh-huh. And then um, he found uh, Chris and Talia decided that there was only one person that could fill both of their shoes at the same time, and that was uh, Rich Gilbert, uh-huh. um, who was from the Zulus, played with Tanya Donnelly later on. Oh, wow. He ended up playing with. Uh, Oh, he was in uh, Frank Black and the Catholics for a long time and then uh, played with Jack White for a while when he moved to Nashville. So he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal player. So he he signed on to do it. And so Armistead and Rich and myself all showed up in a rehearsal space in New York and we played for a couple of hours and Steve went, okay, all right, we've got a show in, wow. you know, like a week or whatever. And we pulled it together really fast. And yes, I was, I was one of my heroes. Um, six months after I moved to New York tops, probably, wow. yeah, probably about six months after I moved. So it was good. It was a good move. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Now, you know, we can't go much further without talking about Mike Mills and Peter Buck and how it is to play with them in bands. Yeah. And well, Scott McCoy and all those people. Yeah, Scott McCoy is uh is um was also a, a member of REM. Um right. for sure. I know they kept it to just uh the the four original members that are considered right. official members, but I mean, sure. Scott was in the band for like 18 years. Hello. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. I have co-writing credits on some of the songs. Yeah, and and it's just such an integral part of that band and their sound and everything they did for so long. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, you know, it was it was kind of shocking when when I was when we pulled the you know it happened because we started the baseball project. That's how right. we all started right. playing together, of course. And so, you know, I think that's been documented quite a bit, but basically uh, Peter had uh, asked us if we wanted to come to this big party the night before um, REM was getting inducted into the base. It's not the baseball, the rock and roll <laughs> hall of fame. Yes. I get that mixed up a lot of times. It's so funny because we played, played at the baseball hall of fame, but anyway, yes. Uh, he was like, hey, there's a big party, you know, downtown, you know, the night before. Um, you guys want to come? And he's like, you know, um, basically I asked, you know, I get a couple guests, so I asked, uh, you know, Keith Strang from the from the Flesh Tones, who was a really good friend of ours, um, if he wanted to come, him and his wife, Anne, and he's like, I want to see if you guys want to come. And we were like, yeah, it'd be great. So, um, so we went and had a Super great evening, super fun. And Steve found himself talking at one point to uh, to Scott after uh-huh. kind of late in the evening when a lot of people were peeling off and many drinks had been, right. and, you know, imbibed. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and at some point, they started talking about, you know, their love of baseball and then how they both, you know, kind of worked baseball into songs that they had written in their past, kind of little lines here or there or whatever. And then it came out that they had both actually been toying with the idea, and actually Steve had been more than toying with, I'm sure Scott was more than, but like actually Steve had been telling me for almost three years that he was intent on making a record of all songs about baseball. And I... wow. I just kept saying to him, like, you know, it's a pretty great idea. I mean, you seem really into it, first of all. It seems like something yeah. you really want to do. Secondly, I think people would really enjoy this. Yeah. I got, You know, weirdly, I have a feeling it would actually be potentially popular. So between those two things, I mean, you should just do it. And if you keep talking about it, someone else is going to do it, you know. <laughs> so I would put your money where your mouth was, you know what I mean? And so it was funny. We came home that night and he said, I was sitting there talking to that Scott McCoy guy, who, by the way, is awesome. You got to talk to him. 
I said, oh, I talked to him. I thought he was cool and his wife is cool. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and he said, you know, we started talking like maybe we should do that together. And I said, okay, here's the uh-huh. deal. You, you're, you're writing him today and you're going to put it in motion. Just do it. Because if yeah. you let it, you know, you let it go by a week and, like, everyone's going to forget. Definitely. And so, like, they got in touch right away and um, just started trading ideas and started trading songs back and forth um, uh, through the miracle, the miracle of the the inner tubes. And, um, yes. <laughs> uh, which still seems, you know, somewhat miraculous. In right, it is. Uh, in November of 2007, but yeah, then we we just decided like, okay, let's make it happen. We booked a booked a week at Jackpot Studios in Portland, and Steve and I went out there. And I really like we didn't really know Scott, you know, like uh-huh. that was kind of you know. I mean, we'd met him. He and Peter had come to a show that we did in Seattle. Uh-huh. We did. Um, Days of Wine and Roses, we did a tour where we just did Days of Wine and Roses. Like, one, like, oh, I know, we would do a set of our own material, Miracle 3, and then we would come out and play all of Days of Wine and Roses. So they came to that, and that was a pretty wild show at the Crocodile. Um, sure. So I met him there a little bit, but I didn't really talk to those guys too much that night. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, we show up. We're staying at Scott and Mary's house, and we really don't know them. Um, so we were kind of introducing, like, hi, yeah, okay, this will be fun, we'll make, we'll write these songs, we'll finish them up, <laughs> in the next yeah. couple of days we'll go in, we'll record, and we stayed up that night just listening to records and cracking some beers, and by the time we all went to bed at, like, four in the morning, you know, I had new best friends, and it was just, wow, so much fun, a couple other friends came over to John Moen, from the Decemberist, the awesome drummer. Yeah. Um, he's so great. And, like, you know, we just had the best time. And so we made – we really – we made the record just me, Scott, and, and Steve. Uh-huh. Um, Peter f- had fallen ill, um, so he was not feeling well at all. So, like, the last day of recording, he stopped by and just, like, overdubbed – on the last day, really put down all of his parts in like an hour or two. Um, yeah, but otherwise it was just the three of us trapping. So like they would take turns playing bass. So like Steve played bass on some songs and Scott played bass on some songs. Right. Um, some songs we would track without bass and they would think one time Scott played piano, Steve played guitar, there was no bass. And then, you know, it, so yeah, we just kind of did it in this interesting, really loose way, and you know, it came out great. And then, um, you know, we had a lot of fun. We ended up playing our first show on David Letterman. That was right. the first time we cool played part. together on stage. Yeah, so yeah. that was pretty cool. About six months after we made the record, um. We were, yeah, we found ourselves playing playing pastime on Letterman, which was kind of hilarious. And then, <laughs> and then our first real show—I keep—we always forget this—but our first real show on stage was also was was not with Peter. It was actually with Mike on bass. Okay. And it was in Spain. Our first <laughs> live show was in Spain in this weird little town called Sos del Rey Católica. Okay. And it's like a medieval town, and we played in the town square with Marat. Really? You know that, that yeah. band from, like, Philly or whatever? Yeah. Um, and we did this weird festival out there, and they filmed it for TV, and we were just, yeah, we were kind of out of our minds that night. We were we, we were not the soberest people in yes. Spain that night, and um, I don't know. It was a blast, but it's kind of 
weird because it gets still gets shown on TV there sometimes. Really? Like, yeah. But so, and and we were stumbling around trying to get back at the end of the night. There are no streetlights. It's a medieval really? town. Wow. So we, and we were staying in like in a Parador, really like a really crazy five-star hotel that was like an old castle up wow. on a hill. Um, and not that we pay, like, we've never stayed in anything that nice before. Right, <laughs> sure. You know, this was just where they put the pan. Thank wow. you very much. Um, I'm normally in a Motel 6, thank you. Um, but we were just trying to find our way through these windy streets and find the castle. Like, it's literally pitch dark. Wow. And we're just laughing our asses off, walking around, trying to figure out where we're going and we're telling stories we ended up talking about baseball and then I have it I filmed it on my camera I have audio of us stumbling around so it's black the video is black uh, yeah. there's no picture but there's video and I have the audio of it and we're just stumbling around trying to figure out should we go left no no I think it's down this way but then we would keep going back to baseball and we're talking about baseball and then Mike starts like getting in my face about about how Kent Herbeck <laughs> yes. um, you know, pushed Grant off the off first base, like uh, you know, being a, a Braves fan, he was saying how, you know, Herbeck cheated by pushing him off first base, right. whatever, and I'm like I was like, No, that was just a gentle I love that was that was acceptable contact. Blah 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 <laughs> and he was getting really worked up about it. And we finally, we came to this kind of clearing. It was a little park, and they had, like, one light. And um, I suddenly, was it my phone rang? I think my, or did I ring someone else? I think it was Hutchins' it lawyer called me out of the blue and I guess we were kind of buddying around at that time but you know he was like friends with me and Steve we'd run into him I don't know for some reason oh I think just because Craig was sitting next to him and Craig you know our name came up or whatever so like he calls George Reed just calls out of the blue and there there we are sitting in the middle of nowhere in this little (laughs) town and there's George Regis and, and Craig Finn from the whole study is sitting next right. to him on the couch. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Craig and I are, you know, we're both from Minneapolis. And I'm like, here, you talk to him. I'm like, you tell him it's, you know, a bunch of bullshit. It's okay. <laughs> Can't hurt back, didn't cheat, you know. So Mike's on the phone with Craig. They're going at it. You know, so it was just, it was a super funny evening. And it, it, kind of made me when we were when I was trying to when I was being um sort of encouraged to write a song about the twins and right. I was having no luck coming up with lyrics, it just seemed like, you know, Craig and I both have a, a real affinity for right. for the twins and have, you know, a lot of uh fond childhood memories about it. We've talked about it before and I was like, Well, I've got to get him to write the lyrics. It's gotta be him. Yeah. So yeah. he and Steve together did that and um Steve wrote the music and Craig wrote those awesome lyrics. And But I always think about, you know, I think we just forget about that, like, whole thing in in Spain that kind of spawned right. a lot of that stuff. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so then Peter ended up, um, you know, being our touring bass player, weirdly enough, um, in, yes. the, in the baseball project for years. But then he sort of, he had some terrible back problems and started, you know, was touring a lot less and, um, Mike filled in, and then because he's got such a love of baseball and sports in general, yes. he just sort of naturally ended up taking over um, and he's most quite of a the base duties. Definitely yeah. quite a character. He definitely has good stories about Roger McDowell. What McDowell was it? What, what was uh, the no hitter? The no hitter guy. Oh, uh, uh, oh, are you talking about Blackjack? Yes. Blackjack and yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, Scott wrote that great song, Blackjack. Um, 
Yes, and he's he's a very cool guy. Jack's a very cool guy and a musician and uh, right. has become a good friend of the band in general. And uh, um, chances are he'll probably make an appearance on the next record, you know. Oh, wow. Get Is him. that the next? What, what, if all the bands are in, what's the next record you're going to do? Of all the bands that I'm in, what's the next record? In all the bands. Of all the bands. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I There are a couple that are in the can um, okay. that I'm hoping will come out, like the next Arthur Buck record. is okay. really sounds great. I'm hoping that will just, you know, because it's done, that would be great for it to see the light of day. Um but in terms of, you know, who will be the first to make a record once we're all able to be together, that's a good sure. question. It could be any number of them. It could, it could just as easily be Filthy Friends as The Baseball Project as Luke Haynes and Peter Buck, um, the Haynes Buck record that came out in March um, uh-huh. was a long-distance, affair but now we'd really we had planned to start doing some writing together as we were um going to be getting together to do a tour of england and it was like well we could write some songs and get a head start on the next record right. while sure. we get, you know so it could be any one of those for sure wow. um uh but it's hard to say which will be the first but i will say we do have a new baseball project single that we're working on remotely. That okay. Tell me about that. We plan to be releasing that, um, a couple songs, um, one that Steve wrote and one that Scott wrote um, on Friday. Um, Bandcamp does a nice thing where they, um, they donate their proceeds to good causes, and one of them is... Um, uh, musicians um so so they give up their once you know once a month they have a friday where they they're super righteous and and don't take a cut so anyway wow that's this coming friday and we're going to release the songs and um yeah they'll hopefully it'll be something fun to tide people over yeah definitely. Um, while they're waiting for this maybe season to start and uh, what are the titles of the songs uh, the titles of the songs are Baseball in My Mind. Okay. Is the name of Steve's song, which uh-huh. is, you know, kind of about this. Right, this, this time. Non existent first right. half of the season, you know. Right. And um, Scott's song, let me look it up because I. I only got it this morning. I only <laughs> got it this morning to listen to, and it's awesome. And we won't be – we. it's pretty much all him. I might try a little really? timpani thing on it, fake timpani. I might find something to <laughs> rattle around on. Um, but it is such an awesome tune. Um, what? I'll well, go ahead. anyway, we'll, I'll figure we'll it out, and I'll, I'll let you know in one second. Yeah. <laughs> and so but, anyway. Yeah, but it's awesome playing with those guys. I mean, it's amazing. And all the projects that we do together, it's like I I thank my lucky stars that I get to play with such, um, you know, brilliant, uh, generous um, musicians, you know? Well, definitely. And so I have to ask you, about the Twins and the Cardinals in the 1987 World Series. Were you that Uh-oh. big a fan back then? Uh, well, <laughs> I I was a I was I was I went to Game One of the World Series. Right. Um, so I was. That was during a time when I was kind more of more, more like taking a break from sure. you know really intensive sports fandom. Um, right. I was an intense sports fan. The way okay, Mike is now that. is how I was when I was a kid. Really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Now, yeah. Mike and I are kind of like cut from the same cloth. We're really competitive, and we're really into kind of all sports. And right. And we're really intrigued by, you know, even the weirdest sports. I don't know. I think he is anyway. I mean, I'm not sure if he actually watches, like, luge during the Winter Olympics, but like, <laughs> yeah. I'm that person. You well, know Mike what I mean? is a big Georgia Bulldogs fan, so I love that about yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like I'm just fascinated by athletes, and, you know, I kind of – I sort of played everything when I was a kid. I mean, I was a speed, I mean, I was a competitive speed skater. Wow. I was a competitive diver. I was a competitive, you know, not just the normal. I I played on soccer teams and right. sure. softball teams and all the normal stuff. But uh-huh. I was also like deeply. I mean, I I I dove for the University of Minnesota. So wow. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. I wasn't a dabbler. Like I was. Um. Yeah, I was. 27 times state champion. Wow. So I did, yeah, I did platform and all that shit. So, you know, not dabbling. That was my life before. Definitely not dabbling. (laughs) But still, I I loved the Olympics. I loved watching, you know, gymnastics and figure skating and and all the, you know, sort of acrobatic stuff was always like my main thing. But, I mean, I loved, I, I loved bobsled. You know, you name it, you name it. So I was really grew up a huge like North Stars twins Vikings fan, you know. Wow. I came from a sporty family and Sounds I like loved it. all that. Yeah, but then um you know, once punk rock takes over I see, yeah. start to <laughs> take a back seat, you know. And That's I think right. Steve had the same thing. You know? Yes. Oh, well, well most people I know who are musicians say the same thing. Like, I was into sports, if they were. It's like I was into it. Then I, it took a back seat as I sort of explored all that stuff. But then sometimes it comes back, big fandom, you know, later in life. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's why it's been so fun to catch up with you and hear about you and the whole rest of your career. And so thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, absolutely. It it was a pleasure, Dale. It was nice catching up with you, man. Yes. DaleWileyShow.com.